The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness. Superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. Hello and welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. I'm Zach Joyner, webmaster and executive producer of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. This show is powered by Spidey-Dude.com. It's part of the general network that powers it. You can support this show, if you like, via Patreon.com slash Spidey Dude Network. You can also leave us a voicemail, 818-925-6631. We'll play that voicemail in a future episode. We also like to get emails every once in a while. Be sure to leave us an email, if you like, gargoylesvoices at gmail.com. Follow us on social media. At Spidey Dude Network on Facebook is the general network Facebook page. But you can also follow this exclusive Twitter handle, at From Erie on Twitter. Follow us there to get show updates at both places. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe if you're listening to us on YouTube. And if you're listening to us on your favorite podcasting app, you can always leave us a five-star review. And we will read all of that feedback in a future episode. Want to give a shout out before we get started also is to our two of our patrons, Scott and Venkman. Thank you for your support of this show and all the shows on the Spidey Radio Network. As always, we thank all of our guests and our host for this show. And with that, I turn it over. Welcome back to our second episode of Voices from the Eerie. I'm your host, Greg Bashansky, and I'd like to introduce my co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson. Hello, everyone. And I would like to introduce back to the show, Mr. Greg Wiseman, the supervising producer and co-creator of Gargoyles and the writer of, well, the first two seasons of Gargoyles and the writer of the SLG comic book. Hi, everyone. And I would like to, it is my pleasure to introduce to the show for the first time, but hopefully not the last, the other producer of the show, Mr. Frank Parr. Hello, everyone. We were going to dive into the making of the show, getting the show onto the screen, but before we do that, we actually have news to discuss. Yay, news. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York, Travis Marshall. Tonight... More on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. After years and years and years of nothing, it seems there's so much merchandise coming out that I cannot keep up with it. I picked up that new Ravensburger Gargoyles video game at my local Target yesterday. They put it out early. Its street date is August 1st, and it's beautiful. The artwork on this thing is beautiful. The art, the board is beautiful. I'm really impressed with what they've done with this thing. I haven't seen that. I will send. Yeah, I will send both of you the information later on. There's also those new Q mix figurines. They announced Goliath and Demona a few months ago. Now they just announced Lexington and Bronx the other day. And um, 
these things are they're not action figures they're little statuettes they're a little bit exaggerated they have really big heads but they look cute and i personally like them better than the funko pops and then the big news the NECA action figures they announced goliath several months ago and he's been up for pre-order for a while supposedly the first pre-order sold out that they had to do a second run and he should be shipping in august at some point and they just officially announced after a tease and a stop-motion commercial their Demona figure and a Thalog figure. Absolutely amazing. They 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 understood the anatomy that we were going for. And they're yeah. Uh, they have dates on that? Not yet. This year though. But they have been teasing us on Twitter. NECA says they ha- they have planned at least eight for 2022. They're oh, ho- full figures. Yeah, they're hoping to do a full line, and I've seen what they've done with other figures. If they if these things sell, I mean, the sky is the limit. I mean, we could, we're talking about big coyote robots eventually. We went into full, like, fandom CSI when they first announced the Goliath one, and then they were showing us pictures of you know them in the studio like putting it together and stuff like that and we're like that is definitely Demona's gun behind him <laughs> is that a part of her crown I think it is I, Boda. I, I, I noticed in the publicity photos uh, the accessories and even got the guns right they did yeah, they look so great that, that, you know they, they obviously are have been fans of the show since they were young and now that they're old enough to have their own businesses. They're bringing it to life, so that's that's kind of cool. It's very cool. That, Although that means on. that we're really old, Frank. <laughs> you know what? I try not to think of that. <laughs> I'm turning forty in about a month, in less I than mean, a month. If you think you're old, I don't even want to think what I am. <laughs> You know, I'm turning 40 in less than a month, and you're still making me feel younger than I do. (laughs) (laughs) So I shouldn't complain, and I won't. Uh, All I'm thinking of is, like, where am I going to put all these? I need to clean off a shelf, because it's definitely happening, all of them. Yeah, I mean, you look at the accessories here. Goliath comes with a book. He comes with alternate hands and an alternate head, and he comes with a jalapeno. That was all. The jalapeno was all I needed. Oh God, jalapeno. A, yeah, I was wondering if you would have an opinion, Frank. Even, even, you know what? Even I'm laughing at that now. So Greg got his wish. <laughs> Newbies, this will be explained to you in due time. <laughs> And Demona comes with alternate an alternate head with a growling face, alternate hands. And like Frank said, they got the guns right. It's her season one guns, not the season two alien pulse rifle gun. But she comes with the bazooka from Awakening Part 5. She comes with the particle beam she used the rest of the season, the one that she tried to club Hudson to death with. Well, you know, the, the thing that, to me, you know, from the, from the photos that I saw that, that impressed me was the physique. And, you know, it's a very more realistic approach that they took than what we did, but they still understood the dimensions and, and the power of, you know, it's like the hands and the feet, that these things look like they could dig into stone, uh, that these are very physical creatures. So, and, and it, it, they're very powerful looking. Uh. You know, that's wonderful. You know, they, they understood it the basics of it, and that's, uh, that makes a big deal. I wish 
they could have done that in the original ones, but well, like uh, even even Demona's alternate head, the growl on her face is like right out of Awakenings. Like it's so perfect. Oh, absolutely, it is. They they pulled that knee right out of Awakenings. They actually did. And I'm looking at the talons on her, and she, pardon my friend, she looks like she could fuck you up. That's what I'm talking about. And she will. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and apparently they haven't shown them off yet, but they announced during their not-quite-Sandio Comic-Con live stream that Thalog comes with a flare gun, he comes with a briefcase full of money, and he comes with the keys to their shackles. That figure is very episode-specific, but I'm still hoping we get one la- another one later with the armor. I absolutely love the briefcase. If it sells, I'm sure it will. I mean, there, there, we did a lot of stuff in there for them to use. We did a lot of stuff, I think, frankly, the idea that eventually it would wind up becoming a toy. Uh, but it all fit in with what we were doing with the stories. You know, I mean, you know, a story first, always. Always. So when you're de- designing death. armor and stuff like that, you're thinking, how will this look if Mattel gets a hold of it? Listen, I'm a, I'm a toy, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a toy collector. I mean, I, I collected toys for years and, you know, from G.I. Joe to Major Matt Mason to, you know, everything. Major Matt Mason, you know, I remember Major Matt Mason. <laughs> you remember Major I Matt Mason? I, oh, I, I have definitely. Yeah. You know, but I, again, you know, I've, I've always been into the toys and I understand you know, is, is making these movies, you know, to me, it, the most important thing is always the story, the characters. And in order to get the shows made, you have to show that you can merchandise the things. But when I was working early on G.I. Joe, they would just throw up these crazy characters and we'd have to put them into a story. So whether they fit or not, the luxury that we had is, that it was always the story first, and then we would we would mold whatever characters we needed, and if they looked like they could do something, then we would kind of play with that. But it wasn't our first intent. Story was always our first intent. I'm glad because... It kind of spoiled me. Yeah, it seems like in this day and age remote where a lot of shows, not the same, it just goes back to at least the 80s, when Star Wars, before that, when Star Wars changed the game and the other company, and all the three companies wanted a piece of that, that a lot of TV shows were toy-driven, but the Disney Afternoon stuff never really felt toy-driven. I mean, there was some merch, but I never felt like it was driving the show, I mean, but we'll be discussing that throughout the course of this podcast, I am sure, but we should probably jump into the topic of this podcast. I'm afraid we're out of time. This has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. We already covered the development and, the, and selling the show. Now we move on to making the show, getting it on the air. And Greg, what do you recall from those early days? And Frank, at what stage did you come in? Well, I mean, the main Greg thing that sort first. of... Yeah, I mean, the main thing that sort of started is, is that um, we had to find... Uh, our producer, uh, because at the time I was still a development executive, um, and we had to find our story editor. And so I was tasked with finding the story editor, and uh, Tom Rizika, who was head of production at Walt Disney TV Animation at the time, was tasked with finding uh, the producer, the uh, director-producer. And 
Um, but in the meantime, we had air dates already locked in, which was crazy. I mean, crazy. And so all these decisions had to get made, um, even though we didn't have anyone in charge of the show. And normally, as a development executive, I would sort of, you know, sell the show and then hand it off to the producers and, and sort of follow along through the pilot, maybe. And then uh, it became sort of the problem of current programming as opposed to development. Um, I would sort of, the, the idea behind me following along through the pilot was to make sure that the show we sold to Michael Eisner was the show we were making. Uh, and then after that, it was sort of not my responsibility anymore. But because we didn't have the depth at Disney in this genre, um, we didn't have anyone to immediately sort of say, okay, we're giving this to you. So when they needed producerial decisions made, I ended up making it. And the more... I worked on the show and keep in mind, I've been developing in it and trying to sell it for years at this point. The more invested I became in being part of it. And, you know, my background was comic books and this was sort of a superhero show without the trappings of superheroes, you know, no capes. Although eventually we came to decide that in order to keep the wings down and out of the way, most of the time we would cape Goliath's wings and, most of the gargoyles' wings. So we did kind of wind up with capes, um, but, you know, no capes, no tights. But otherwise, this was sort of a superhero show that just wasn't labeled as one. So that was, you know, right up my alley, and I just kept working on it um, while I was trying to find a story editor. And we went through a number of designers, some that took a shot at it, that wasn't quite working. Uh, one of the problems that we had is that writers sort of, we kept saying, look, we want this to be an action show. Again, you know, in the mode of Batman, the animated series. Uh, and I don't think some of the writers believed this. Uh, they kept saying, well, this is a Disney show. So they must want it to be, you know, comedy adventure. And, and so the tone would be off. And then we had other writers who uh, we tried to just, or at least I tried to hire, who rejected the idea. <laughs> uh, one of them said to me, uh, this show uh, isn't going to work. It's never going to work. And another one said to me, um, you know, I really, he, he was a guy, but he said, uh, I really write from a feminine point of view. And this show is so masculine, uh, it doesn't work for me. And so we got rejected by a few writers, and then other writers couldn't quite capture the tone. And we then uh, found a writer, my boss, Gary Kreisel, found a writer uh, who wrote the pilot uh, for episodes, and, and they weren't working either. Um, and all this pilot stuff was based on a story that Paul Lacey and I came up with. Um, Paul was my development associate um, when I was director of series development. And so because all these writers hadn't gotten it, Paul and I finally came up with the story and we handed it to 
the first writer whose name I'm blanking out on, but he still has a credit on the first five episodes. Eric Luke. Um, Eric Luke, yeah. And um, he was basically telling the story, but again, the tone was off. It just wasn't the show we were looking to make. And finally, thank God, we found Michael Reeves, um, who we stole away from Batman the Animated Series and Warner Brothers. And Michael just got it um, pretty much immediately. Um, so we said, look, we don't want to reinvent the wheel here. Here's, here's Luke, uh, Eric Luke's script. Um, here are copious notes on what Eric did. Can you fix this? And he did. I mean, just did a fantastic job. Um, we wound up with too much material, uh, and ultimately turn that four-part pilot into a five-part pilot. Um, although I think by that time, Frank, you were aboard. But meanwhile, simultaneously, Tom was uh, having trouble finding the right person, just as I had for the story editor, to produce the show. And then finally, thank God, found Frank, who we also stole away from Warner Brothers and Batman the Animated Series. And uh, Frank came aboard to produce the show which was fantastic. But again, at this point I was really feeling like this was something I was heavily invested in. So I went to my bosses, Bruce Cranston and Gary Kreisel and said, and asked them to let me move over and produce the show with Frank. And they were reluctant to say the least, um, the first response is, you've never produced a show before. And I said, no, but I, you know, five years ago, I'd never been a development executive before, and that worked out okay. I'm kind of a fast study, and I've been you know, acting as the producer on this show until Frank came aboard. And so they gave me sort of a tentative shot at it, saying, okay, you can produce the show, which is a full-time job with Frank. Um, but you also have to uh, continue in your development executive slot, which is a second full-time job. And they were going to pay me for the lesser of those two. Um, and so for 10 months, that's what I did. And uh, I think, I mean, Frank, you can speak for yourself, but I think Frank's initial reaction is, wait, I've got a partner? When did that happen? <laughs> uh, well, you know, uh, when, yeah, you, when you work for a large company, that always happens. So you don't you don't think much about it. It's just like, okay, well, uh, I already knew you had a lot vested in it at the time. I mean, my first thing, really, when I got the job, was holy shit, I've got to deliver this thing now. You know, it's more more right, of a, yeah. a, more terror that now there you know there's this multi million dollar thing on my shoulders, and I'm like, oh. Liberty Jib. Uh, you know, so so when that happens, you 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 you, know, you work for someone like Disney or Warner's, uh, you know that there's always layers applied. And so it really wasn't it, it really wasn't that much of an issue because Greg kept everything pretty much on the uh on his end was was pretty much on the writing the story side and mine was uh continuing the visual development and uh working out the 
the uh, presentation, the, the visual development of the, you know, what you finally saw on film. You know, and then later on, we both came in and this stuff came back together. You know, we, we, we merged in and, and worked together eventually more. But uh, we both knew what we were doing and the things that we were doing, and we would allow each other to do that. And every once in a while, we would cross over with concerns and things like that, and we'd work it out. And I got to tell you, you know, for the most part, I think it worked. You know, it's, it's like I said, Garfield was, was kind of spoiled me in a way because we didn't really have a really heavy top layer of people coming down on us. You know, the only people I had to really worry about, quite honestly, you know, in, in, in answering to was, was, was Craig and, and Carrie. That was it. You know, nowadays yeah, you have hearing... a whole line of lawyers and things that you have, you have to deal with. Yeah, and Gary was sort of hands-off, too, basically. I mean, uh, we got some notes from Jay Facuto here and there, um, who was the current executive assigned to the show, and then later Kim Christensen. Um, but uh, for the most part, I mean, I know I've told this story before, uh, but uh, because I had been an executive and because I still was an executive for the first season... Um, we were kind of left alone because there were other shows in crisis at the studio. And so everyone was really busy on some of these other shows that might've been slightly more, uh, problematic. Um, and it was sort of like an insane asylum where they have trustees, their inmates, their patients. Um, and that was the thing. The executive staff often viewed the talent as lunatics. These people are just crazy. How do you how do you work with these people? They're crazy. That's how they view <laughs> talent. And <laughs> so, to be fair, many of them were uh, right. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> I uh, I was because I was an executive and quote unquote talent. I was the lunatic most trusted. So when other shows were problematic, they sort of left me to do the show and then, you know, would check in periodically uh, to try and figure out, okay, what are they doing over on Gargoyles? And so we had very little interference. We got S&P notes from Adrian Bellow, but Adrian was really great um, about understanding that as long as we showed the consequences of an action, she'd let us do it, um, you know, within reason. Um and we were in syndication in those first two seasons, so we weren't, we didn't get have a network, we didn't get network notes. Um, we uh, we had it pretty easy, and I agree with Frank. I was definitely spoiled on Gargoyles. The the only thing I can say is, even at the time, I kind of knew, wow, this is a unique situation. This is a unique property. These are unique talents. The people I'm working with here. I may never quite get this again. Um, and so, you know, it was exhausting, but I appreciated what we had even at the time because, uh, um, A, I, you know, I was new to producing, but B, I, I recognized that this was not just uh, typical 
of how shows operated. We had so much more freedom than than uh, than most shows do. I don't think we I ever definitely got that have more again Young Justice season three. We definitely have we definitely have more than we ever did on Batman. Uh, I mean, Batman was fairly liberal with what we were doing, but even they, you know, with the network notes and everything else, you know, uh, there were always people coming in on that. But uh, here, not really. It's, you know, it was, you know, it was, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You know, <laughs> uh, everything comes with a caveat. But uh, it worked out great. It definitely did. I so think I, my memory is is that almost immediately when you came aboard, Frank, uh, the first thing you had to do was go to Japan. I did. I did. I cur- I, 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 I admit I, I caused her controversy when I first got there because I altered the design of the series of, of all the characters, the, the look of the show. Uh. Whereas before, I mean, they were beautiful designs as they were, but they were very comic book in that, you know, everything was very well-rounded and uh, the anatomy and everything. And I simplified everything because what we learned on Batman was simplicity is best for the animators. Uh, I felt also it kind of gave it a very graphic feel and it was a contrast with realistic backgrounds that we wanted to use. Uh, But mostly I felt... Yeah, and and one of the one of the things, you know, because I, I have done some work on the the old uh, X Men the animated series, and they took the comic book approach on it, where everything was rounded and detailed, and it just looked like the animation just looked like crap. It just did, still does, doesn't hold up, and I didn't want that for this show. And I thought if we simplified it more, uh, put real animation in there. You know, it gives us a chance to really play off more character bits so they can and do more with it. Uh, it would come out better, and you know, I think that was a good decision. But ultimately, we left it up in the hands of the Japanese, the studio doing the actual animation. And I, I went over the designs and I simplified things. I did very rough drawings of each of the characters. I just kind of went over placed uh, a see-through pad, you know, onion paper over the designs and just simplify things, kind of give an explanation just to show them what they could do. And unanimously, they decided they wanted to go with a more simplified version. And so that's what we went with. But Kreisel, again, he was he had a lot of concerns about it, but he left it in the hands of the Japanese studio. And they chose the simplified version. So that's how that happened. Uh, and then I went, and that was that was a lot of that was in Japan, and I stayed there for I stayed there for about a month, three weeks to a month. I can't quite remember exactly. The time kind of flew when I was there. Uh, and I believe I do you, remember hearing about the I do believe hearing about the earthquake here, <laughs> seeing my street on the news while I was in Japan. That was interesting, but uh, interesting anyway. as in terrifying, right? Yeah, because you couldn't really contact anyone for, for a while. I yeah. was on the East Coast. I was probably the only one in this room who was on the East Coast when that happened. <laughs> I was right in the middle of it. And, I mean, I grew up around earthquakes, so they never used to bother me until that quake. But I think the big thing that changed, and my wife has always been pissed at me about this, kind of, because 
for her, she was pregnant with our daughter. So it was like, oh, she's like, oh, so that's why this earthquake upset you because I was pregnant. I'm like, no, it's because we owned our home. It was the first time I was a homeowner when an earthquake hit and I could feel the home shaking and our chimney ended up walking away from the rest of the house. And Beth's like, so it wasn't about me and the baby? I'm like, no, it was about the house. Um, <laughs> you need to learn the proper time to lie to your wife. <laughs> right, <exactly>. uh, <laughs> yes, honey, it was all about you and the baby. I was terrified. That would have been the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But I grew up with earthquakes, so they never used to bother me until I was a homeowner, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Until you were financially liable. <laughs> hey, I'm a homeowner now. We don't have earthquakes, but I get it. Believe me. Anyway, um, I, Frank, I believed you uh, worked with a man re- redesigning everyone, all the characters named Kazu Yoshi Takeuchi. Oh yeah, yeah, that guy is fantastic. You can't give him enough credit on this show. Yeah, I've been very humble, out. very humble, uh, humble person. Uh, just very quiet, but man, what a powerhouse of, of talent he had. Because I called him, called him cause. You were lucky to have and him. Keep on in mind, show. I, and this may have been just before Frank started. I can't remember, but originally they sent us six sets of designs on the lead characters. Six. And they labeled them. They didn't put names attached to them. They just labeled them A, B, C, D, E, F. And we all unanimously, I forget what letter it was, but we all unanimously chose the same design set, um, and that was Mr. Takeuchi's uh, set. And so he became a lead character designer for the first season. Um and then, uh, like I said, uh, and Frank said, he went over there and, and worked with them uh, to simplify those designs. But the still basic, I mean, all those designs were based off the development artwork that uh, Bob Klein and Dave Schwartz and Paul Felix and um, uh, Greg Guler had done. So they had done sort of the inspirational designs, and then Mr. Takeuchi did the first round of designs and then Frank came over and uh, and worked with him to simplify it. One of the things... Yeah. And the thing is, Go on. You know, one of the adva- advantages to uh, Takeuchi-san was uh, he's an anime. He's an actual animator. I mean, usually you get character designers and they design characters, but they don't really animate, so they don't really understand how the character moves. Uh... And the, the animators have to figure that out. In this case, he knew how the characters could move, and, and so he knew uh, he knew how to do it, how to design them for for the, the best use, you know, to get more out of them, basically. Uh, and that's always the that's always a huge advantage is when you have an actual animator sitting down with the art direction that uh, that has the experience to know how to do this stuff. I mean, I. I Worked with a lot of character designers, and uh, the ones that work best are the ones that know how to animate. There's no exception. You know, it's like it's, which is a shame because animation these days seems like a lost art form to the animation where you can get them, particularly in TV. Uh, I miss it. Anyway. 
anyway, one of the things, though, visually that I always appreciated about the look of the show was I'm a New Yorker, born and bred. There are very few, a lot of car- action shows take place in New York City. Very few of them actually look and feel like New York City. This one did. Yeah. Uh, well, you yes. found tons of color photo reference, didn't you, Frank? I feel like you were constantly. I went. I I went. Uh, during that time, when I was I was trying to figure out the look, you know how to do because you know the idea was well it's mostly at night so we don't have to worry too much about we don't have to get too embroiled in detail but we have to get embroiled enough when we need to and this is at night nobody ever sees the rooftops rooftops are an art all of the, and of themselves because there are each so unique in a lot of their designs and what you can do in personality. There's just so much you can do because there's just so much on those things. Uh, During that time, I was, you know, the Batman crew, you know, was was nominated for an Emmy and they were all sent to New York and I was working for Disney at the time, but I was still on the Batman list, so I went to New York and I thought, well, uh, I got myself a camera, and while I was there, I went up and down the avenues taking pictures. I'd go into all the bookshops, and I would pull out tons, just tons of New York rooftop, New York at night, New York at the day, all these different, you know, uh, all these different locations that you're not going to see in California, but you don't even know about because, well, you're somewhere else, you know, but... When you're in New York, you know, there's just so many different locations that you can find that, you know, references that, that you can get. And so with, with all the books and all the photos, and I, I took a couple thousand pictures of photos. I mean, I took a lot of photos. Uh, and I took all that stuff and took them all to Japan with me. It all went over well, we also gathered. And, I think we also gathered video reference, like... Uh, you know, the opening of the Letterman show and, and you know, which, which had helicopter shots of New York at night. One of the big mm-hmm. things that was important to us was the color palette, that gargoyles are only awake at night. So we didn't, we weren't looking for a Batman, the animated series, you know, grim, dark, black sort of world. We wanted it to be full of this sort of dark but rich color, magentas and purples and um and you know neon and and all sorts of stuff that gave it this richer uh color palette um and we thought or at least hoped would distinguish it some from batman um and so yeah, we didn't want frank to copy took all that right frank took all that stuff with him to to tokyo you know, and eventually it all went down to, because one of the big things when you always looked at uh, big city, and unless you're doing, you know, unless you're watching an anime from Japan, uh, all of the background, all of the, you know, they, they pictured cities uh, in American cartoons. It was just, you know, you're, you're, the streets looked like they were about maybe 10, 15 yards apart from each other. Sidewalks looked like they were about two feet why? I mean, just none of it looked real, and nothing ever really looked like a real city. You 
know, I've, I've lived in New York for a couple of years, so I, I, I know what a city is. Uh, and nobody ever really got it because, because frankly, a lot of people working on those designs had never lived in a big city. I mean, when you're asking Koreans, for instance, to design and do things, they're going to do what they know, and what they know is where they live. So that's more true to where they're living. No sidewalks and small buildings hunkered together. You just didn't get the scale. And New York is, you know, the greatest city on the planet. Yeah, it's got to have scale. And so it was, it was, it was, it was a character in the show. New York was a character in the show. It had to be treated as such. So every episode had to be treated with with that respect. That it had to have that uh, that scale and that that beauty and that beauty and that darkness and all that stuff that comes with the big city. And so that's what we were we were trying to trying to achieve. Well, I really appreciated it. Appreciated it that you brought the beauty to it because most of the time on TV, especially around that era in New York, which sometimes depicted as pretty grimy, grungy, like in the 70s when it was uh, a bit more dangerous, despite the fact that this show had supervillains and criminals all over the place. I appreciated that beauty and it just, it, it felt like home watching it. I, I loved it. When you look at a city like New York at night from the rooftops, it's 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 the city of golden rivers and that's beautiful and at night cities are always beautiful even when you're on the ground looking up you're seeing these buildings just disappear into the sky there's so many different things that you can do uh you know when you're an artist you just kind of look at things with a different eye whereas in the day everything just all the you know everything is opened up to you you know, we we weren't about that. This is a show that happened mostly, you know, it happened mostly at night, and we wanted to bring that richness in that palette into it. And so we we didn't have a lot of the day type stuff. It was, I mean, when we did, we we tried to make it as feel as real as possible. But for the most part, you know, it, it's it's uh, I always like the richness of the city at night. There's something special to it. There definitely is. So um, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves, maybe we're not. But around what time was the show finally unveiled to the public? And do you two remember those days, how the press reacted, how focus groups, assuming there were focus groups, reacted? I mean, I'm pretty sure, I mean, there had to have been. This is a new show for Disney, so. But we did one focus test, this one that I can recall, um, that, uh, and Frank, I think you were, I'm pretty sure you were there. You and I were there. And, and I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. So they had, they showed, uh, some footage and then, I mean, the thing I remember most is, is that, you know, then they asked the kids and what was interesting is that nowadays Disney uses focus testing to see whether or not to make something. And that wasn't the case here. This was a, a marketing, the marketing people, uh, at Disney wanted to do this focus test because they weren't quite sure. Again, this was so different for Disney and the Disney afternoon. They weren't quite sure how to market the damn thing. Um, and so they wanted the focus test to give them ideas on how to market it. Um, so it wasn't like, you know, I, I don't think we were quite as nervous as you would be today where you're going in and going, geez, are, are we going to get to make this show or are they going to kill it? Cause some, 
you know, eight kids around the table didn't like it. But what happened is that uh, they were, the kids were pretty enthusiastic. And then the, you know, the moderator comes into the room and says, okay, I just want to ask you a few questions. What do you think of Goliath? Oh, we like Goliath. He was great. What do you think of Brooklyn? Oh, we like Brooklyn. He was great, etc. And then they got to, what do you think of Demona? They're like, oh, no, we didn't like Demona. And so Frank and I were sitting there going, okay, this is perfect. You know, they liked the heroes, didn't like the villain. Um, and, but then when the report came in, uh, it was like, you need to cut Demona out of this show. Uh, she's a problem. No one in the room liked Demona at all. And we're like, and so people are coming to us saying, well, I guess you got to lose Demona from the show. And we're like, guys, guys, guy who was testing was asking about the villain. So, of course, you know, in other words, the kids like the heroes and didn't like the villain. This is exactly the response you want. It doesn't mean you cut the villain from the show. Um, and it, it was like this mental thing where they were like, oh, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm like, like have you guys not done this before? I mean, it was bizarre. Um, but the first real test was in Florida. Um, we, we went down to Florida, uh, I want to say uh, September 29th, uh, 1994, about a month before the show premiered on television. And there was this big event for uh, this new attraction at Disney World in Orlando, uh, Tower of Terror, which was this sort of weird idea of creating a kind of new haunted mansion based around Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. And Gary and I went down there with uh, Keith David, Marina Sirtis, and Sally Richardson. And we had two theaters in what was then called Pleasure Island where they had this big multiplex. And they invited all these reporters to the theater and then filled out the empty seats with local kids who they bust in. And what they ended up doing is, because they had two theaters, they filled one theater with the reporters and they just had a few empty seats, which they filled in with kids. And then the second theater was all kids. And Gary decided that he would be at the, in the theater with the reporters to introduce the thing, and he was going to take Keith, Marina, and Sally with him, all three of the actors. And then said to me, you handle the other theater. I'm like, well, can I have one of the actors? No. So I was alone in the other theater. I would have been alone, but uh, just coincidentally, Bob Schooley, uh, the guy, one of the guys who created Kim Possible, um, and worked on multiple other shows for Disney, just happened to be in at Disney World with his family on vacation. So I called Bob and I said, look, I'm all alone here. I'm terrified. Uh, can you come to, the, to see this? And he's like, sure, you know. So we go into the second theater, which is just me and Bob and lots of kids. And um, I stand up and introduce the thing but the kids don't care. They just want to see it already, right? 
So we turn it on, and then one of the things that they did at the theater to get the kids in a good mood is they gave every single kid a jumbo popcorn and a jumbo soda. What this meant is, is they're eating this popcorn. I mean, what could go wrong? <laughs> right. They're eating this popcorn, which is, of course, salty. And then because it's salty, they're drinking all this soda. So, of course, they all, with their little bladders, have to go to the bathroom constantly throughout the screening of this movie. It's not a long movie. It's like the movie version of the five-parter was maybe 80 minutes, I think. And so they are constantly getting up to go to the bathroom throughout. And what that means is that even if you're sitting in your seat, someone's constantly crossing in front of you. And so the movie was constantly being disrupted for all the viewers. And... As the movie's playing, no one's laughing at the funny parts. No one's gasping at the exciting parts. They just don't seem into it. They start throwing popcorn around the theater, etc. Um, and when it's over... So like it's full over, Lord of the over. Flies going on. <laughs> right. When it's over, it's over. They just get up and go. They have, there's no nothing. So I'm like, okay, I've got to go. We're having a press conference in the first theater... Uh, that Gary was in with all these reporters, all the other Disney executives and our three actors. And um, I'm going over to that theater for the press conference now that it, the screening's over. And Bob is with me and he goes, yeah, I'm going to go now. And I'm like, no. And he's like, yeah, good luck. Um, and he just takes off. Because <laughs> this has gone so badly. I mean, just so abandoned like, you in your time of need. <laughs> right, exactly. And so I'm like dead man. Don't leave me, Greg. Crushed. Don't leave. Don't leave me, Bob. Don't leave me. Yeah. <laughs> um, crossing the 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 Cineplex to go to the other theater. I am literally like dead man walking. I'm like shit. We we blew it. This doesn't. The show doesn't work. It it. Um, I'm going to get fired, etc. And as I'm about to enter the theater, um, Laurel Whitcomb, who was our publicity person um, and who wound up marrying our uh, music editor on the show, they met at, a, at our rap party and got married. Um, uh, but at the time, Laurel was just like, she was like, that was great, you know, and... Uh, and I said, was it? And she's like, yeah. And then Rich Frank, who was my boss's boss, came up to me and said, congratulations. I, I said, oh, did it go well in your theater? And he's like, oh, my God, they loved it. They laughed at all the right places and they gasped, you know, when, and, and how did it go in your theater? And I'm like, uh, yeah, about, about the same. Yeah, like that. Uh, um, <laughs> see, sometimes I know when to lie. Uh, yeah. And... I cross over into this other theater and, you know, at this point, the kids are, you know, the few kids that they had there are gone and it's just the reporters and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, uh, and we start getting asked questions and at one point, uh, someone is asking, you know, you know, what is it? You know, how do you feel about, you know, the message that the show is sending? And we're like, well, 
you know, like Beauty and the Beast, it's about not judging a book by its cover. And although the monsters, the gargoyles may seem like monsters, they may seem uh, ugly. And then a female reporter in the audience goes, Oh, I don't think Goliath was ugly. She said really loud. I don't know if she meant to or not. <laughs> but she was like in love. I mean, and so, uh, and Keith, of course, in his smoothest way, says, well, thank you. Uh, I can't, obviously, I can't do Keith David, but it was just, you, I'm sure you can picture it, imagine it. Uh, he just as smooth as silk says, well, thank you. And the whole place just erupted. Um, and uh, it went really well. I mean, that was the first time anyone saw uh, the actual show. It just occurred to me before that, telling this out of order, but that's because, you know, this was so long ago, I'd, I'd forgotten until just now. We actually had this event at Universal, at one of the hotels at, at Universal, uh, studios in los angeles where we showed a preview the sheraton um the sheraton yeah, yeah we had the, the gathering there that one time we had the uh right. banquet so, up there same room <laughs> right so we were in there um and they just showed this this preview that we had put together with temp music it was music from uh, some of the music was from the movie glory Boy. and there was another yeah there was another bit of music. Power of One. Yeah, exactly. And uh, so it's brief. It's like a, I can't remember, like a three-minute preview or something. And we showed that. We had, again, a group of actors there uh, uh, with Gary and I. There was uh, uh, Bill Fogerbachy and Jonathan Frakes and Ed Asner at that one. And, again, you know, we... Uh, get this question, which is, uh, you know, is this Disney? Is this a Disney show? Uh, you know, what would you let your kids watch it? So, you know, they're asking the people uh, who are up on the stage, and at the time, you know, Ed Asner's kids were my age. So, you know, he's like, well, you know, <laughs> you can't really answer the question. And Jonathan Frakes and I, both of our wives at the time were pregnant, but we didn't have, you know, kids to watch the show. So that sort of, the question just sort of segued over to Bill Fogerbachy, who was the only one who had young kids at the time, at least. And Bill just says, classic line, he just says, hey, it's better than Barney. And ever, and you could tell there were a lot of reporters in the audience who had kids who were forced to watch Barney because their kids loved Barney. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and hated it with a Barney with a passion. So they all laughed, which was great. And really from that point on, from there and from the event at, uh, uh, in Florida, in Orlando, we always had the press on our side. Um, we didn't always have Disney on our side, but we always had press on our side. <laughs> um, always were really good to the show, um, recommended it. We got great reviews almost universally. Um, and uh, and that was something, and of course, you know, none of them knew about the, 
the second theater and all the kids who hadn't given a damn about the show and had walked out after eating their popcorn and drinking their sodas and going to Babbitt's 63 times. Um, but it all worked out. Uh, again, there was something kind of kismet about Gargoyles. Uh, you know, it, at least back in the day, there were, you know, the gods were smiling on us a bit because, uh, um, we dodged a few bullets here and there. We just managed to get the right people together to make the show and, and did something that I think still holds up today. You know, they, they smiled on, they smiled on us because they, they liked how everybody worked their asses off on that show. I, I know yeah, everybody I'm concerned with that got very little sleep for several months putting that thing together. Uh, it's true. You know, so yeah, you know, it's it's it was, it was it was refreshing to get to get the thanks on that stuff because you know you you put so much of your life into making these things. Uh, it's not a nine to five job in our position. It's not a nine to five. And and Greg, you know, God bless him, he was doing double duty on you know dealing with the you know I mean I mean we got away with a lot, but I, a lot of it I I assume is because Greg. Deflecting, allowing us. Well, to do what I, I we remember to do. Frank and I, Frank and I went to to uh, lunch once with Gary Kreisel. This was by this time it was season two, so I was season two. I wasn't an executive anymore because we did thirteen episodes for season one, and then the order came in for season two for fifty-two episodes. Ultimately, that's another story, but uh, um, and there was no way I could. 52 episodes and do the development job. So I had moved over full time to Gargoyles at that point. But like I said, you know, there were other shows in crisis at the studio at the time, so we were really left alone. And so Gary Kreisel took Frank and I to lunch one day. And he was actually kind of apologetic. He's like, oh, I've been so swamped with other things, I have not given any attention to your show at all. Um, and I apologize for that. So tell me, how's it going? How's production going? What kind of stories are you telling? So we start, you know, reporting to him. And at one point, we're saying, well, and Thanatos is marrying Fox, and they're having a baby. And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I wouldn't do that. And Frank and I kind of look at each other, and he's like, no, you can't do Gary's like, you can't do that. I mean, they're the villain. Uh what are you going to do? You can't take their kid away from them. That's wrong. But you can't let them keep it. You can't let bad guys raise a kid, can you? And no, don't do that. And so, again, Frank and I just sort of exchanged this look. And I said to Gary, well, we already did. Um, it wasn't like we were telling him something for that we were planning for down the road. It was something that was already in production at that point. And there's this long pause from Gary, and I can read exactly what's going on in his head. He's thinking, well, either I let this go, or I have yet another show in crisis that I'm going to have to tear apart and create, you know, make it late and, and spend all this extra money. And so I think we got away with it out of sheer exhaustion. Like, he just sighed this really big exhausted side and then he just said to us all right you can do it but but don't dwell on it 
I didn't have any clue what that meant, but Frank and I immediately were like, yeah, yeah, we won't dwell on it. We won't dwell on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you dwell this, this, not this giant, this, this giant albatross, this, this giant thing in the room, we won't dwell on that. Right. Uh, but, so, you know, it's, we, it, 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 it's very interesting, though, because yeah, I, I'm sure there are examples before gargoyles, but this was a situation where you took these these villains and we make them so cool and likable that they become, in fact, more anti-hero than villain in the eyes of the audience. And, and they accept that sort of thing. Because Xanatos, despite everything he did, he wasn't, the, the, he wasn't Lex Luthor or Dr. Doom. You know, it's like, oh, that didn't work. This. We'll try something else out. That's what's... Let's all take a break and go out and do something. Uh, and then he'd think up some other scheme, and he would do it because it was it was challenging, is mentally challenging to him. It wasn't about world domination. And I, I think the audience there there was a thing in there where the audience just kind of keyed on to his character as a villain, and and they they liked him because of it. I mean. It's it's very strange. You see a lot now where people like it, start to like the villain, all of a sudden the villain stops becoming so villainous to them. You know, it's like Loki. <laughs> you know, he's a villain. And yet yeah. he has a whole series based around him now where he becomes a good guy. Let's forget the fact that he murdered thousands of people in the early Mar MCU. Uh, but they like him, so it's okay. It's weird. <laughs> I, yeah, there are times when I have to remind some fans that Demona is a mass murderer. Oh yeah, they they make her sound so sweet and wonderful sometimes. Yeah, well, at one time she was, but yeah, I mean she's, I mean she she's living her hell. She's she's a she created the mess and she, now she lives it. Yeah, she created the mess and she's in her own hell that she herself created. That's very that's good writing. And she tries to blame everyone but herself. Mm-hmm. And that's real. <laughs> yeah. No, like, I, I absolutely love her. She clearly is my favorite character. Me too. I, I think we can safely say that, that if those focus group marketing executives had gotten their way with their wrong-headed approach, Jen and I might not be here today. Well, you know, <laughs> it's interesting. I don't know. I don't moment. think I could resist the wings thing. Like... <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough, fair enough. The way you said that, it made it sound like, yes, you you never would have been born. Um, We would have never been born, not for Demona. Well, she's a thousand years old, she's affected history in a variety of ways, who knows? (laughs) The butterfly effect. (laughs) No, no, Demona, again, it's like... I think when the, and, and again, it, it's it's building a character over time. Uh, and at the end of City of Stone, her password alone. Guess what became my password for like ten years? <laughs> and that, no one guessed that. You're lucky. <laughs> that that ex, that explains Demona's existence, and she's done it all to herself. <laughs> <laughs> and it still even now gets me, you know. I mean, it was it was so well done. Yeah, I really can't wait to do our I, I deep think dive. That in in Demona and Xanatos, we really created a pair of villains that truly were 
for the time at least, unique. Um, I mean, I think since then there have been many like each, but, um, you know, Simona's closest antecedent is probably uh, Magneto from certain versions of the character and not other versions, but um, that idea that a lot of what she's saying isn't wrong, you know? Um, the prejudice that she's felt and the exclusion she's felt and the hatred she's put up with all um, create some justification for her anger, but she takes it way beyond, you know, all the way to genocidal thoughts, you know, against humanity. And then for uh, Thanatos, this idea of a guy who's not interested in revenge, who's not petty at all, um, he has his agenda, he has multiple agendas, and, um, you know, what we used to call our Thanatos tag at the end of many episodes where you thought he was about X, but it turned out X was a side thing, and really it was about Y. Um, that's become like a, a trope of its own. You the know? Xanatos but, Gambit is what yeah. they call it. Yeah. That's the named after him. And, and, uh, and back in the day, no one was doing that, really. Um, Carrie Bates and I, and Carrie wound up being one of the story editors in the second season of the show, but Carrie Bates and I had a character in, in the comic Captain Adam called General Ealing, who was kind of a proto-Xanatos, but not nearly as charming. Ewing was, you know, uh, very military and, and tended to yell at people. And Xanatos was so smooth, so charming. It was hard to hate Xanatos because he was so funny. He was so, uh, and I don't mean funny like goofy and comedic. He was just, you know, he had this, he was sly. You know, he was really a trickster figure of his own. Um, and nothing ever and, ruffled his uh, feathers. He was always a cu- well, cucumber, cool cucumber through the mm-hmm. whole thing. Right. And, you know, he valued his employees. They did good work for him. He valued them. They didn't have to, you know, the thing I always used to bother me is, you know, someone would fail to kill the Fantastic Four and Dr. Doom would kill him for the failure. And, and I would always think, hey, Doom, have you ever killed the Fantastic Four? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, uh, you're blaming your these goofball second bananas for not achieving something that you've never managed to achieve. You know, the and Shredder I always thought, sent out Bebop and Rocksteady, and it never worked out for him. Right? Yeah. So it was just was well. Also, you're working with that, second layer tit. You're working with with inferior talent because the real talent's going. I ain't gonna get killed. I'm leaving. Thalog. <laughs> <laughs> you know, tried to play him as someone who wasn't petty, who didn't need, you know, he could play act at wanting revenge if it suited his purposes, but that never really mattered to him. And he didn't want to take pieces off the table. Why would he want to kill the gargoyles when he's been able to manipulate them into doing all this stuff for him? Sometimes it doesn't work out, but most of the time it does. Um, And... Again, most of the time he's got multiple items on his agenda. So even if the main thing doesn't work out, he got some side benefit from it. And all that made him pretty unique back in the day. Um, 
uh, from everything else that was being presented, certainly in animated cartoons. Um, and so I think Demona and Xanatos specifically, but all our villains, Salog and Macbeth and um, the Pack and uh, Fox for sure, uh, they just, you know, it, our heroes were terrific. I don't want to downplay that, but I just think one of the big strengths of the show is that we had strong villains with unique perspectives that brought out the best in our heroes and, and made the show richer and more well-rounded, and, and that's part of what made it possible. I agree. I've always pointed out to people, even to this day, and I will admit my bias, and maybe I'm wrong, but I tell people, you like villains like, say, Azula? You can thank Xanatos and Demona for opening the door for this. I agree with that. They're kind of, they made the, the typical cartoon bad guys, you know, like... They, they were always just someone who you knew was going to lose. And with Demona and Xanatos there might be a way they're winning this. And I, I think that was a huge step in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that we always strive to avoid in Gargoyles in any show I've worked on is you want to avoid that problem of villain creep, which is that, you know, you see your bad guy lose often enough, and when he, shows up, he or she shows up again, you're kind of like, yeah, we know they're going to lose. Um, and so you find ways for them to win, uh, for our heroes to win, but also for our villains to win, uh, so that they still seem threatening. They still seem unpredictable. You never quite know what they're up to until all the cards are put on the table. And well, that's the term unpredictable. They're always unpredictable. Right. Ain't that the truth? <laughs> but I also, but I, I do. Hmm? No, go ahead. I was going to say, say, circling back to the show coming out of the air, I remember the marketing at the time. I remember it was very smart. The earliest commercials were very mysterious. It would be the still shot of a stone Goliath on a building in the rain with lightning flashing. The lightning would flash, and all of a sudden he would be gone. And they didn't even really tell you it was an animated series. It was just like, it's coming. This October, Gargoyles. Is it a show? Is it a video game? What is this? And it was intriguing, and I... Every new commercial at the time revealed a little bit more. They never gave you a full shot of the gargoyles, and I don't think we got our first real look at any of them until the premiere. I mean, we saw Lisa, a close-up of her at one point, but we, there was no Xanatos, there was no Demona in the commercials, nothing. Just a, just a vague concept, and Elisa Maza, and it was some of the smartest marketing for an animated series I've ever seen. Jen, do you remember this? Yes. Oh, I, I absolutely remember it because I was like so eager to <laughs> sit down and watch it. Like they gave you just enough to like pull you in, and it wasn't a an info dump. It was just a, a lure, and it was very good. Yeah, I mean, I feel like they did that without us, Frank. I don't. Rem- I mean, I remember seeing the stuff, but I don't remember them consulting well, us at all. Just doing it. No, they. <laughs> You know, I mean, there are a few things I, that that they would come up with. I would go, what? You know, like the the the, the uh, I would see yeah, some of the DVD art. I was less than thrilled with, but uh, oh, yeah, but that was that was much they, later. <laughs> that was much later because they really again they still didn't really quite get what we were doing. Are there? 
well before before we begin wrapping this up, are there any other anecdotes during the making and process of getting the show on the air that we haven't gone over that you two recall? I, how did I mean, you guys feel the second it aired? Like, like what was that like to actually see it on TV? This labor of love. It was, it was great. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it, back then, it, you know, I had a, you know, I recorded it off TV on VHS. Um, uh, everything was videotapes back then. Um, and, and, you know, the internet was in its infant stages. So we didn't get, I mean, nowadays, you know, the moment something airs or drops, I can go online and get the response to it. But back then, the closest thing we had to that, and I had to find it, was, uh, there was somewhat, uh, there was this, uh, email chain or something, you know, it, it was, you know, there was no websites to go to. There were no, it was just a bunch of fans put together an email chain. I'm thinking like Juan Lara and, and uh, a few others. Um, this was all so long ago that we had no idea how the show had done um, in the way you know now. Um, so we're waiting for Nielsen ratings to come in, and they're overnight. So the next day, but, you know, we were on a, fr- uh, we were, well, the first week we were on five days a week, so you're waiting for these overnights each day for the day before, but the overnights are just tentative. But they were good. Um, and then you have to wait like two weeks to get the final numbers on how the show did. And again, keep in mind, we were in syndication. So, you know, in, in one market, we might be on at 4.30 p.m. in the afternoon after kids are home. Um, in another market, we might be on at 2 p.m. when most of our audience is still in school. In another market, we might be on at 8 in the morning. <laughs> um, you know, when some kids are still there, but most have already headed off to school. And in another market, we might be on at 6 in the morning when no one's awake yet. Um, so it, it was, it was a real mixed bag. And, um, and so you're sort of waiting for literally weeks with bated breath to see if people like the show and our, and numbers were strong for the first day and they only got stronger with each succeeding day of that first week. And then the numbers did great. We were a genuine home run. Um, and then came Enter Macbeth, which came back from overseas in disastrous shape. Um, so bad that Frank and I were like, we, we can't air this show this way. It wasn't just about calling a few retakes and getting those back. But um, they had to reanimate a whole bunch of stuff. Um, it had been subcontracted out from... I think that was done Tony in a studio in the Philippines. Was it? Was that yeah, Japan or I can't remember now if it was Korea or the Philippines or what. It, I mean, it was back before Korea was a big animation powerhouse uh, industry in Seoul. You know, so most of our first season episodes were done 
in Japan, many by Walt Disney-owned studio in Tokyo, and a couple subcontracted out to other Japanese studios. But we had one or two in that first season that were subcontracted either to Korea or the Philippines or something like that. I feel like there was even one episode, might have been season two, that was subcontracted out to Brazil. Um, but this one episode came back in such bad shape that we felt we couldn't air it. Um, and so Gary's initial reaction is, we'll just air the next one. And we're like, we can't because this is the episode where they moved from the castles of the clock tower. So we've got to air this in order. Um, which meant that they needed to put in reruns. Now we only needed a, you know, a couple weeks break. But of course, the thing they reran was the five part pilot. And at that point, we were a weekly show just once a week on Fridays. And so that meant a five week hiatus of reruns um, to give us time to get Enter Macbeth up when we only really needed one or two weeks. Um, and that hurt our ratings a bit. But then our ratings started to climb back up so that by the end of the season, after uh, when we got to the 13th episode, our ratings were incredibly strong, which is what led them to sort of say, hey, this show's a hit. Let's strip it five days a week next season. We need 52 episodes. You have 10 months to make them. And so I'm in a meeting where they say that, and I'm like, yeah, that we, we're not going to be able to do that. And they're like, so frustrated with that. Buena Vista was the distribution arm, and they're like, well, what do you think you can make? And I said, well, we've got six scripts in the works for season two. I know we can do those six. We did 13 last season in 10 months. It's tight, but I think we can do 13 again. And I think if we really push, we can do eight. And their response was, well, if you can't give us 52, then just do the six. You know, we don't need 18, just do the six. So I was actually a little disappointed, but okay, six episodes. Well, season two will have six new episodes. And and so we set to work to make those six episodes. And then two weeks later, I get a call saying, hey, you said you could do 13. And I'm like, yeah, that was two weeks ago, but... Okay, I still think we can do 13. Um, all right, then you're doing 13. And then two weeks after that, I get a call saying, you said we could do 18. And I'm like, that was a month ago. We are not, you cost us a month. And they're like, you said you could do 18. I'm like, fine. So we then were going to make 18. And then two weeks after that, so that's six weeks after the initial meeting, they said, yeah, you got to make 52. And I said, we're not going to be able to, because, you know, what that meant in those days was they wanted 52 all for the fall quarter. It wasn't like they wanted 52 across nine months or 12 months. They wanted 52 all to air new episodes airing between September and December, and really early December, because, you know, pretty soon you get into the Christmas break and stuff like that. And I just said, you're never going to get to, there's just not enough time. It's just not possible to get 52 episodes in the fall quarter. And they said, you've got to make them. So we immediately, for season two, 
had to expand everything. We uh, brought the production back from Japan to Los Angeles, uh, Burbank, though Japan still did a handful of episodes themselves uh, under our supervision. But we expanded to three director crews plus Japan and four story editors. And we did the world tour and all this stuff to expand the universe so that we could do 52 episodes in one season. In, in the same amount of time it had taken us to do 13. Um, and I was right. We couldn't get 52 done in time for the fall quarter. It wasn't possible. Uh, we ended up getting 31 done in the fall quarter, which was way more than I thought we could accomplish. But still, from Buena Vista standpoint, um, you know, they viewed it as failure on our part. <laughs> And then we had two other problems, Uh, two other big problems that hurt our ratings. We were still a hit, but we went from being sort of a grand slam home run in the first season to just, you know, a single or a double in the season Um, because of two main factors, three if you count the reruns they had to put on because of uh, uh, we couldn't deliver 52 in the first quarter. And one of those was the O.J. Simpson trial which was going on at the time and was constantly preempting our show, um, making it hard for kids to find it. And the second was uh, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which I, you know, wish I could say differently, but was just this huge hit, massive hit. Uh, And they beat it day in, day out. We were always number two. We never fell to number three. But... Um, but they were number one every single day we went up head to head. And uh, that was just a phenomenon uh, that even though it mystified me, certainly at the time, um, why this thing was so popular, uh, it was. And uh, it beat us every single time we went up against it. And so by the time... uh, season two sort of uh, rolled to a finish in May of uh, 96, I guess. Um, When you throw in the fact that all our bosses who had supported the show had gone away in one way or another, um, all support for Gargoyle sort of, you know, the the floor dropped out beneath us and, and, uh, and suddenly Disney went from loving the show to, you know, thinking it it didn't work. You know, it's, it's interesting that, that even now, you know, it's like when I was doing uh, Earth's Mightiest Heroes, we still got fallback because from Disney uh, saying you can't have multi-episode shows. And so it's like, you know, it affected my second, you know, midway through the second season of of Earth's Mightiest Heroes, they came in and said, no more, Uh, everything's got to be a single episode, so you got to change everything that you planned mid-season. And that, that was, that was still fallout from Gargoyles, who they didn't want to deal with secondary, you know, with with multi-episode shows because they thought kids didn't like that. And now that's all anybody does. 
is is, is multi part shows. Right. You know, so yeah, it's bingeable. And you know, we we're maybe a little ahead of our time, maybe. I don't know. But I know it made better shows, made better stories. And in, and those stories last over the years. You know, I mean we did a remarkable thing in getting those fifty two episodes out within the time we did. And those shows still they're all very quality, but they all still stand out. They're all still good. I agree. Uh, you know, so we did something right. You definitely did, and something right. I mean, it's in a way it has lasted all this time. There was we had the gathering of the Gargoyles conventions, which we'll talk about throughout the course of this pod of this and future podcasts, and um, we will and. Honestly, now we're seeing all, circling back to the beginning, we're seeing all this new merchandising, and I don't know what the numbers are on Disney+. Plus. I hope people are watching it. Hashtag keep binging gargoyles. But there seems to be a renewed interest in the show. I mean, and I hope this is leading to something. I hope, I mean, the figures are cool, but I think we can all agree what we really want is a revival, new canon stories. Agreed. Yeah. I agree. That's what I'm dying to see. To make, frankly. Yeah. So, I mean, I... It'd be fun. Yeah, I mean, I hope that the uh, environment is improving. I've got a good feeling about this. Uh, like I said, those NECA figures, the buzz for them seems to be really hot. NECA seems to be really invested in making that line a success. So we'll see what happens. And, um, they're, and I see them telling people to watch the show on Disney+. Plus. So... Hopefully they have a reach. I mean, a reach that maybe we as a fandom didn't, and they are able to help to help out with all this new stuff. And there, I mean, there are times when I wonder if the SLG comic came a little bit too early. I'm so grateful that we have had it though. But maybe now the '90s nostalgia is finally happening. I think we talked about this a little bit last time, but I'm seeing more and more of it out there. True. True. Look, I just want more. I don't care what we have to do to get it. <laughs> Who do I have to sleep with? We all, we all want to be entertained. <laughs> just give it to me now, okay? And um, if there is nothing else, we, I suppose we can begin to wrap up. Are there... I mean, we'll start with you, Jen. Is there anything you would like to plug? Do you still right now? I'm getting ready to go to uh, Planet Comic Con next month in Kansas City. Um, I'll have a table with Gilly Hathaway. Um, so be selling my art, my jewelry, and my buttons and stuff there. Excellent, Frank. Do you have anything you would like to plug? Anything you're working on that you can talk about? Uh, not a whole lot I can talk about, really. You know, I've been working on some of my own stuff for for a bit. I'm working on another Scooby-Doo project, which is fun. Nice. Uh, Love me some Scooby-Doo. Nice. Scooby-Doo and I have become very good friends over the past few years. <laughs> <laughs> never, thought I, never thought that would happen, did you? You and, <laughs> you and Vic Cook. <laughs> you and Victor Cook. But, um... But, um, and before we cycle to Greg, one thing I would like to say that I would love to see, I don't know what the process would be to get this, but X-Men the Animated Series, Eric and Julia Leewald recently released an art book, The Art of X-Men the Animated Series, and 
considering all the artwork on Gargoyles, how gorgeous that show was. I would love a book like that. I would. I, I, I would buy multiple copies. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. I, I feel like we tried to get that going at one point. I have a vague memory that at one point we tried to get that going and it just never happened. Um, yeah, it'd be terrific. And God knows there's a lot of gorgeous stuff. Of course, 25 plus years later, it might be hard to find some of that stuff. But, uh, but yeah, I, uh, I, I agree. I'd love to see a book like that. I, but, uh, I don't know if that's on the horizon. Maybe someday we'll see how this um, merchandise revival goes. And Greg, do you have anything you would like to plug? Uh, not really, not yet. I mean, I'm working on season four of Young Justice. We're definitely in the home stretch now. We've got 14 episodes in the can. Uh, I'd say about, yeah, seven more in post production and. Last five are still being animated overseas, uh, but uh, I don't have an air date yet. Don't know when it's going to drop on HBO Max, though I do know it will be on HBO Max. Um, but uh, stay tuned. You know, um, might be. I'm guessing there'll be more information by the time DC Fandom comes around. I don't know that. I'm guessing, but uh, that makes sense. Well. Uh, Hopefully, by the time this podcast drops, we'll have seen something. A trailer, if not the first episode. <laughs> no idea. All right. Well, if there's nothing else, I, I would like to say thank you to everyone for coming on. You can follow us on Twitter, this podcast, at From Erie, F R O M E Y R I E at From Erie on Twitter. We, we were constantly promoting this show, giving updates, and talking about the show and the original show series in general, and the merchandising. We will let you know as soon as pre-orders for the Demona and Thalog NECA figures are out, and just watch that, watch that space, and join us next time when Greg Weisman will rejoin us to discuss the pilot, Awakening Part 1.